So Lisa, I read this really incredible article about over 860,000 women leaving the workforce in September of 2020. And I'm reading this article thinking, goodness, is this all pandemic related or what's going on? But this is major and, and I'm not quite sure how to process it. Yeah, it definitely feels like or statistics are showing that women have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic in terms of the employment. And it's 865,000 for one month feels very, very overwhelming. Um, right, right. And I, you know, in our context and in the endurance sports context, I wonder what that will look like. What are the long-term effects of that in, for participation, for race success, if you have a, so many people who are unemployed? Yeah, absolutely. So I think today we need to really dive into socioeconomic status and how that is so fragile and how it can affect endurance sports moving forward. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. So, you know, we know that women have been disproportionately affected in the workforce by lots of different things, whether it's, you know, whether it's a true pandemic, like what we're in right now, or whether it's just been the, you know, decades and decades of injustice just falling down upon us. But this feels a little different. That article that I read, it just felt a little different. And I know that it has some connections to endurance sport and what we do. Yeah, I mean... You know, I hear a lot in endurance sport um, when trying to address the quote unquote gender problem <laughs> um, in reference to women's participation, women's involvement. I hear folks say, well, you know, women are just not that interested in sport. You know, that just mm-hmm. isn't something that they want to participate mm-hmm. in. You know, they have different interests. Um, and it's frustrating for me to hear that because. Um, like you said, uh, there's this whole history of exclusion and marginalization um, from not just sport, but from other forms of our public life and restricted gender roles, lack of affordable health care, lack of time, um, lack of disposable income. We know that women are paid less, you know, and one other thing that's really interesting to me is, you know, women are often critiqued much more harshly for participating in activities for themselves um, if they have children. So as absolutely a, as a absolutely. mother, you know, training for an Ironman, then you're somehow deficient. You're ignoring your children. You're a bad mom, right? Because of all the time you're taking t- for yourself, whereas uh, a dad does not receive that same critique. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I've been there and done that, got the t-shirt and the sign, you know, as far as, you know, how that's projected, you know, and it's, it's as if, um, self-care is a bad thing. It's a negative thing. And it's a, uh, it's taking away from, you know, your household, your family, your children. So for example, most people that know me and follow me and follow my social media know that, you know, I'm an early bird when it comes to training. So, you know, before the little ones have literally opened their eyes, I've probably done two workouts and I'm back at the house or I'm on the way to work or what have you. And even that was still judged as you're taking away from something. Right. And so, you know, compound that on top of mothers who work outside of the home Mm -hmm. compared to fathers that work outside of the home or other partners who work outside of the home, then all of that, it's like a double, triple weight um, that women carry 
when it comes to this type of work. And so then when it comes to the connection between, okay, you're spending both time and now money and what that means, because, you know, we realize that triathlon is a relatively expensive sport, but it's almost as if any amount would be too much for a woman to spend on doing something Mm -hmm. that they love to do. That's Mm -hmm. not a necessity. I will admit that, that it's not a necessity, but um, it is something that they want to do. It, It just is not viewed the same way. Yeah, I agree. And I also think about, you know, coming back to the employment piece that in this pandemic time where people um, have been working from home, and of course, that's just a subset of the population too, right? Mm -hmm. And that absolutely is broken down by socioeconomic status, depending on kind of what what professional position you're in versus um, a position where you don't have that luxury to work from home. Um, You know, women are much more cautious or concerned or worried that children running around in the background will negatively affect how they're viewed by their work colleagues in terms of their um, capacity, um, you know, opportunity for promotion, ability to excel in the role. And I think that concern um, speaks to this kind of tenuousness of women's employment, Um, you know, and then we go back to your figure of 865 thousand in September, you know, Mm -hmm. we've been in a pandemic for a very long time now. So we've got millions and millions of women are leaving the workforce either because they're forced to because of um, lost jobs, if they're in the hospitality industry or tourism industry, or because they are needing to make that choice. But that whole bad mother thing, like just hangs over it. Um, And and then you have women stepping out of the workforce because of this um, narrative around bad motherhood, working and parenting that men don't experience. And so then women's economic power is even further reduced. Yeah, absolutely. And so then, you know, they have less power. Um, They are once again, marginalized um, uh, from a lot of different perspectives. And, And it's almost like a, a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Like you're you're treated as less than if you do participate in anything um, in regards to something that's fun, that you enjoy doing, that's not a necessity, but it's more of a, a hobby or a, a lifestyle for you. You know, you're, you know, ridiculed in that way, but then you're also ridiculed even if you don't do it. You know, it, even if you don't, even if you, um, and, and I think, you know, this is going down another rabbit trail too around just, mm-hmm. you know, mom bullying um, in many ways that mothers are bullied from so many different directions. It's really incredible. So um, a, a mother is rarely doing it right, whatever right is. I'm using air quotes as I'm talking to y'all right now on the podcast, but, you know, it's, there's this marginalization that happens where there's a, incredible and also invisible standard that someone has created that constitutes great motherhood. And it doesn't include Mm -hmm. always necessarily working outside the home or uh, being the, being the only person in their household to work outside the home with, with children. Um, And it definitely doesn't include uh, what would be considered frivolous things, which is endurance sport. Yeah. And those things are not frivolous for men, right? Because they're staying healthy. They're staying fit. Um, right. Right. You're, right. you're making me think also of um, a, a, a podcast that I listened to. It's by the Harvard Business Review and it's called Women at Work. And it's a really great uh, podcast that dives deeply into women's experience in the workplace and women who 
don't have children, choose not to have children, um, and how they're treated vis-a-vis women who do have mm, ch- children. And so yeah. the kind of the, the bias still manifests, but in a different way, because you're a bad woman if you don't want to have children, or there's right, some you're somehow right. deficient in some way if you're not able to have children, right? And then um, so you still get judged, right? Or if you're spending too quote unquote too much time training for that um, long course triathlon, that's the reason why you don't have children, right? You're just putting too much time into this other thing and Mm -hmm. you're neglecting what it is that you're supposed to do. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's a really interesting dynamic. And there was a a specific episode that dealt with how um, women who don't have children are often assumed to not have a social life. And so they're leaned on to a greater degree in the workplace because they don't have those outside commitments of taking kids to soccer or whatever, right? Or Mm -hmm. uh, Taekwondo. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's Mm -hmm. really interesting because they also don't get paid more, (laughs) Um, you know, and that's a different burden. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a, it's a different burden. And, you know, <laughs> I, I was talking about West Wing in, in previous podcasts. Now I've moved on to Madam Secretary. Um, and, and even in those episodes, one of them was specifically around a diplomat that was being um, deployed, if you will, to a very difficult to navigate country that was very impoverished rather than where she thought was going to be, she was going to be deployed, which was going to be Amsterdam, which, you know, Af- relatively affluent, developed, et cetera, she was really going to treat it almost as a, a mini retirement before the retirement because she finally got to get out of certain areas of the world uh, that were more impoverished than others. And she, uh, at the last minute, was not able to uh, be deployed to Amsterdam. Uh, she was instead sent to somewhere very remote in the Congo. And she called it out right then and there that this is because I'm a single woman without children because everyone else on this list has a family and you sent them to more developed areas. And she called it out right then and there. And you're exactly right. She didn't get any more money for it. That was an entire conversation on the episode, you know, all of that. And so, you know, I, I think all of this is important feeder conversation into, you know, these infrastructures that are in place that determine number one, what income looks like, but then also what, ongoing cumulative wealth looks like and then how that affects what people can and cannot do with their discretionary Mm -hmm. time and money. Um, And Mm -hmm. so all of it kind of is, I feel like it's, you know, chain linked together Mm -hmm. um, that these conversations we're having, well, of course, someone making a certain amount of money or not making any money, of course they can't participate in endurance sports the way others of us can um, because they don't have the privilege of having that stability or even feeling as if they have that freedom by virtue of being oppressed in many ways by the people around them. And so that makes the connection to, you know, who wants to be badgered about the fact they went and ran a 5k on a Saturday morning. I mean, nobody wants to feel that way, but oftentimes women are experiencing that um, or badgered because, well, you spent this amount of money. Well, why, why is that not okay for this person as a woman and mother, but okay for a man who is a father? Again, all these standards are really mm-hmm. strange and feed into this overall understanding of what income does, what wealth does, and, and the power of both. Like sometimes I even feel like even if women were paid more than men, the stigma would still be there of how they spend their money yeah. and their time yeah. regardless, right? Um, and so it's just this double, triple stress on women that I'm seeing here. 
Absolutely. And your point about the infrastructure, right, brings us back to systems. Like, so women's participation in endurance sport is not necessarily this free choice, right? There, women are making this choice um, and they're weighed yes. down with yes. all of these other things that are happening, yeah. all of these other constraints, you know, and just to give listeners kind of some context, if you're, if you're unaware of how, you know, the pay gap wage discrimination is happening, the 2018 Census Bureau data, um, on average, women are earning 82 cents for every dollar um, earned by men of all racial identities. But if you break that down, then we have um, Latina women are earning 54 cents on the dollar. American Indian indigenous women are learn- earning 57 cents on the dollar. Black and African-American women, 62 cents. White women, 79 cents. And Asian women, 90 cents. So no racial category of women mm. is mm-hmm. earning um, for the same work what their male counterparts are. And so that economic power um, isn't there, that disposable income isn't there, those social and political and cultural constraints um, that you mentioned, Shauna, like even if it was apples to apples, right? Even if we were all earning dollar to dollar, I think we would still be under a microscope about the choices we're making related to those uh, endurance sport activities. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, that's how our society has been built, at least here in the United States that, you know, women carry this weight of what they can, can or cannot do what they should or should not do. And so, you know, given that that's how, you know, women are viewed, like, I can't tell you how many women feel guilty about showing up to that race on that Saturday or Sunday morning, because they know they need to check in with family or, you know, apparently no one in the house can function if, mom is not there, you know, to cook a meal or what have you. And so all these perceptions um, that are very real for their lived experience, you know, like the, one of the things that I uh, really have observed over time is, you know, when you're at a race, regardless of the distance and you already have family or, or um, family or children calling or texting, you know, before the race, during the race, after the race, well, how long are you going to be there? When are you going to get home? You know, all of these pressures that are around. And I feel like all of that would still exist. um, Impact, uh, impact how we rate and, and, you know, even the psychological effects of carrying all that while you're racing. Yes. You know, all of that together. And I am no psychologist by any stretch, but I'm just thinking about all of that. Um, And, you know, that is weight that we carry into the sport through the sport, even as we enjoy it we still carry that. So what would it feel like to, you know, participate in a race or an event and not have to carry all of that mm-hmm. with you at the mm-hmm. same time? What would it feel like? Um, or even training? I mean, I don't even have to harp on racing, you know, training in and of itself. It's like, um, you know, some women feel like I have to rob my family of this hour and a half because I need to go get my long run in today. When, why can't it feel like, oh, I get the opportunity to do my long run and the house will not fall down while I'm gone. You know, it, it's just a very interesting weight to carry um, in addition to the money piece of things and how fragile mm-hmm. that is. And, and, you know, the article that we started off with, you know, 865,000 women who have left the workforce in one month. Well, you know, we know that there's some mis conceptions about wealth. You know, most people think, you know, you're either low, mid or high income, and that's about it. When income and socioeconomic status is extremely fragile, it's very fragile, yep. you know? And so given that, you know, how is that going to have some long-term effects on the endurance community? 
you know, people are toggling about between these different levels of class and, and socioeconomic status. And so as they toggle about, what does that mean for us in the sport, the longevity of the sport? How long will it take the sport to bounce back? All of that, I think, is affected in many ways. Yeah. And, um, you know, industry leaders and organizations understanding that fragility, right, that people's economic status, particularly women and particularly women of color still, um, you know, is is highly fluid and coming out of a pandemic where there has been such a hit on women's employment. I think that the endurance sport community needs to shift the way that it engages um, because it's not going to look the same. Right. And yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, ju I just think that um, we don't talk about this enough. Um, you know, growing up in the UK, I was always told that the United States is a classless society, which obviously is bullshit. But, um, you know, right, thinking about right. class in the context of the UK, you've got, you know, monarchy, aristocracy, duchess, landowners and all of that history, um, which doesn't exist here. Right. And in fact, the United States was founded on um, rebelling from that. But the United States has developed through its history a different kind of class system. Right. That is. In a, it's intersected with race, it's intersected with gender, it's intersected with ability. Um, and so that, Shauna, you had shared with me an article about the tenuous nature of um, a person's socioeconomic status and COVID obviously illustrates how quickly you can change levels. And so there were, I think, 10, eight or 10 levels that um, the article talked about. Right, um, right. And I think right. that it's more granular, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. It is more granular. And yeah, so I, I read this incredible article um, and the article, it's in the Washington Times. And, you know, for me, I've been using it for years. I think it was written in, in uh, 2014, but the article talks about all of these different class levels and how fragile they are. So, you know, in the US, we usually think of those three levels when in fact, there's many more. So for example, you know, we have everything from generational poverty um, which keeps certain families from breaking these generational barriers around wealth all the way up to, um, you know, our ruling rich, if you will. So, you know, they hold these positions of power in society, et cetera. They live secluded lives. It really don't even have to interact with the general public and every level in between and how fragile that can be. So for example, you know, if a, since we're talking about women, well, depending on the situation, if a woman endures a divorce, for example, then even though their income may not have changed, their income has changed because now their household has changed. And therefore um, that taxes both time and money. So that's, you know, a, it's literally called situational poverty that the situation for that individual has changed. Um, or for example, you know, someone that's uh, has risen up from poverty into middle class, they have resources, but they still have the mindset of someone who's still in poverty, for example. Um, and so, you know, thinking short-term versus long-term. So short-term thinking might be, you know, I'm going to rent an apartment, even though I have enough money to buy a home and the credit to buy a home, you know, so that mindset. And so, you know, as we cycle through all 12 of these particular levels and how fragile they are, one of the greatest examples that one of my uh, students shared with me was that she was uh, the founding director of the Veteran and Military Services Center at Georgetown University. And she mentioned how, you know, 
the difference between a VA disbursement being received on time or too late can be the difference between five levels um, in this actual list of um, of income mm. socioeconomic statuses. And so given that that's literally how fragile it is. And in the United States, especially, you know, given our healthcare system and lots of other things, one situation or thing that happens to a woman can change where they are on this chart. So literally people who may make, you know, high five figures, depending on where you live, especially if you live in Washington, DC, where everything is pretty pricey, you can be in high five figures as far as income, but still be one paycheck away from being homeless because of your context. And so what does that mean on a grander scale when it connects to women and what they yeah. can and cannot do? That, that's a huge connection. Yeah. And I think the pandemic is one of those situational poverty examples, right? That we now are going to have a disproportionate amount of women yeah. who are going to be yeah. experiencing um, a massive drop in income. Um, and you know, whether or not they have family to care for older adults or children, right, is going to affect their capacity to be able to engage in in endurance sports moving forward. Um, And I, you know, I think it's, we can't overstate how important it is for the endurance sport community to really think about that and to understand that. Um, You know, the other thing that this makes me think of is Ironman, um, a while ago now introduced payment plans for ah, their yeah. entries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And cause I've always said like, <clears throat> it's too expensive, right? 800, $900. Like that's, you're not gonna, you're not yeah. gonna broaden your customer base if it's so expensive. So they introduced these payment plans, which I think on its face feels good. Right. Because I, I talk about, you know, coaches perhaps um, offering, monthly installments for coaching versus uh, an annual fee or a quarterly fee, right? To make it more affordable for people. But I wonder about, there's there's a detriment, I think, with payment plans, because I'm not sure what the interest is or if there is interest. Like, I'm not sure what happens if you default on your payment for your Ironman entry, right? And so there's a, a, a level here that you um, have shown me, and we'll include this article in our show notes, that it's the um, illusory middle class. These Americans have houses, cars, TVs, et cetera, but they also have staggering debt associated with each possession. And so then thinking about how a payment plan, um, while on its face seems great, it's just contributing to debt for people who perhaps can't afford it, right? But they have this like Mm -hmm. this, then you've got this, you fold in this kind of anything is possible theme, right? Right. Right, and people right. are um, particularly more economically vulnerable people are putting them, I'm going to say putting themselves, but that's victim blaming. I don't mean that. They are mm-hmm. um, being enticed into a situation that creates fragility for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're they're being enticed into that. And so therefore they're breaking up the the payments. And, you know, if you're new to the sport, particularly there is a lack of knowledge around the fact that when you really think about it when you get to the level of you know half iron full iron the registration might be the least expensive thing you're paying for in the whole process yeah because you gotta pay for months of training and you gotta you know if you need equipment upgrades if you need to make changes etc cetera, etc cetera. you know the 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 20 20 you know chamois bike shorts that you bought off of amazon that worked for a sprint 
are not going to work for a full, you know, so those types of expenses to think about. Um, and even that is, yes, it's enticing folks into an experience because they do want the experience, but at what cost? Um, and so, you know, I think it's, it's important to note and, you know, also think too, going back to our Iron Man point, but just in general, when it comes to philanthropy, you know, sometimes I wonder if we're giving to the wrong things, right? So, you know, not mm. to say that, you know, brown and black kids in low income communities shouldn't have bikes. I'm not saying that continue doing what you do, but sometimes it's a structural situation where, a woman wants to do a bucket list race and really what she needs is childcare during the dog on race. I mean, it's, it really may be that little of a right, gap right. Um, as far as access to the sport. So what does that mean? Um, I know that will look completely different in a, a post pandemic society here, but just throwing that out there that these are thoughts. Um, and what does this mean? And we've talked about before, even, you know, those who, can't afford to pay for that extra night at the hotel because they need to be there the day before to be at packet pickup. So therefore we're charging them double or, or an additional yep, fee yep. to pick up the day of all of that factors in. So how can we redistribute funding in ways that increase access, but um, really bridges the gap between these folks that just have, you know, a few small things. It, it almost feels like Lisa, when we have that student who has maybe $1,500 um, in the bursar's office that's owed that they can't afford, but they've already spent a hundred grand on their education. So they're literally $1,500 away from a degree and they can't afford it. I, I right. feel that way sometimes with endurance sports is that, you know, it, it's smaller things that would be big barriers to women and endurance sport that we could be handling um, rather than something that looks more like a, a white savior situation with, um, some of the other philanthropic work mm -hmm. and efforts that we do. So I, I think there's something to be said about that. Yeah. Cause it's, it's again, that individual system thing, right? So if I'm going to, I'm going to pay for bikes for black and brown children in a community, cause they don't have bikes. Um, that's an individual response. It doesn't step back and be like, well, where do they have spaces to ride bikes? Right. Do they have role models in their community who can, teach them how to ride bikes, right? Like it, it's kind of the cart before the horse in a little, I think a little bit. Um, I mean, you shared the example with me the other day about your county and um, bikes aren't the issue. It's yeah. swimming pools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bikes certainly are not the issue. You know, we have lots of cyclists out, women and people of color out on bikes, etc. But, you know, my county, um, where I lived for 11 years, usually toggled between number one and number two in the country as uh, the most affluent county of African Americans. Yet, you know, if you're looking for a inexpensive lap pool, you're not going to find it, you'll find a couple of splash pools here and there. Um, but the notion of I don't want to say serious swimmers because that really sounds wrong, but uh, lap swimmers and endurance swimmers don't have a place to go because they've built in systems for children, which is still needed. Um, but the lap pools and so forth aren't there. And so how can you, you know, it, it just, it brings up so many misconceptions about what mm -hmm. income and affluence is. And the notion that people of color don't have money is not necessarily true. Um, right. But but the historic ramifications of their context, their systems, their city, states, counties that still don't have the infrastructure to even support their income 
uh, that's a lot. That's a lot. And that goes beyond the individual's persistence, resilience, any of that ability. It goes beyond that. You can be mm-hmm. an able-bodied swimmer and uh, amply funded, but if your system requires you to drive 30, 45 minutes away to find a lap pool, mm-hmm. that's a systemic issue. Yeah, because assumptions are being made by city government, city councils, you know, about the needs of a particular community. And I think that that is based in bias, right? That's based in racism, that's based in sexism. Um, And I think this is an important piece around income versus wealth and, you know, for our listeners to understand and how Mm, when we're talking about generational wealth in the United States in particular, right? that is generational wealth is disproportionately held by white people because of the US history of slavery, Jim Crow, segregation, um, redlining, housing discrimination, employment discrimination. I mean, the list is endless, right? And that historical context has effects now. Um, And yet um, it's really important that to understand that, you know, not all folks of color are living in poverty, right? Because that's a damaging stereotype. And then you end up with these systemic problems where um, communities are under-resourced because of the assumption that um, communities of color don't need A, B, and C, right? Like your swimming pool example. But, you know, I think, and so income and wealth are different, right? And Shauna, you've, you've, articulated that really well in the past to me about how you see them as different. And I'm wondering if you'd do that for our listeners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I was thinking out loud, so I'm going to try to recall as best as I can, but it's a great point around, you know, you can make a certain amount of money, but that doesn't mean that you still have the safety net or the structure of wealth that may be generational wealth. Um, It may be um, real estate wealth, other types of wealth. And so you can make tons of money, but that doesn't mean that it's invested in places that continue to serve you um, without having to literally, you know, sell your time, you know, because wealth, in my opinion, is you're literally not selling your time. You can be, you know, luxuriating, you know, in the Riviera while your money is doing the work for you versus income where no, you got to get out there and be scrappy and do it for yourself. And so you're exchanging your time for your money and that's two different things. And so when, so for example, if a person uh, higher on that scale of 10, 12 socioeconomic statuses, if they have equal income with someone else, but they have structures of wealth in place if the person of higher income or, or similar income, if they lose their job, they still have the wealth to lean back on versus someone that has the same amount of income and they have no wealth to lean back on. And so therefore there right. is no safety net. And so I feel right. like wealth is a bit more of a safety net um, versus income. There is no safety net. Like, you know, thinking about, especially during a pandemic, those that um, may be temporarily disabled, for example, due to COVID-19 or some other reasons. Um, given that that family, if they don't have wealth, they're hurting and they're hurting for multiple reasons. And so, you know, given that, I think it's really important for us to be clear on how that plays in. So if the guy that is very affluent um, and, and has both income and wealth, if that guy loses his job, he can still race. He can still race right. next weekend. Right. He can still race next year. He's just waiting on his next opportunity for a job, but that's not going to determine whether he eats tomorrow or not. Mm-hmm. He's still mm-hmm. going to eat. He's still going to have a roof over his head. He'll still be able to race. 
Whereas for someone else, whether it's a woman or a person of color, if they lose their job and don't have wealth, then that's it. Right. There is no racing. And in fact, there is no a whole lot of other things. Um, and therefore, they're going to have to make do. Um, and so, you know, I think those are the big differences, in my opinion, between income and wealth. So, you know, the question that popped up to me while you were talking is, uh-huh. do you think triathlon is designed for wealth versus income? Uh, yeah, I, I think triathlon is designed for wealth. Um, I don't think it's designed for income. Um, just off the top of my head, I'm going to think about it a little bit more that look, that might be an, yet another article, Lisa, that we need to add to our list of unwritten articles, right? Yes. <laughs> um, but, but, <laughs> but I do, I do think you've got a point though, is, you know, triathlon may be built for wealth because it's, it's frivolous, right? As much as I love it, I, I love it, but it's still frivolous. Mm. It's not a necessity. If I want to swim, bike and run, I can literally do that at, uh, at somewhat of a little expense, you know, yes, we need to purchase a bike, but you know, if I were not racing or not racing at a particular level, then I may not need to have, you know, the, the four or five figure bike, I could have a simpler bike, I could have, you know, what have you. And so right. you know, given that, I think you're right that income makes you think about budgeting. It makes you think about, you know, okay, I need to give up this to do that. I, I, I think you're onto something, but I need to process that a little bit. That's a great question. That's <laughs> so, great. I, I, I didn't think mean to dump that on you. Well. No, I love it. I love it. Well, you know, now, so the follow-up question to that is triathlon or endurance sport built for built towards wealth or income. Um, I think, Income may be the key to getting in the door, but wealth may be the key to staying there. Mm. Um, and so that that's two different things. That's yeah. certainly two different things. And I do think that that question or those um, comments are elevated because we're coming out of a pandemic, right? Where, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, white men are the least affected um, by yes, the right. pandemic. And that's the group that is, most often participating in triathlon or cycling or other endurance sports at high levels. Mm -hmm. So we have a compounding um, that's happening because of that crisis, because of that perhaps situational poverty, but then um, because, because communities of color, women often don't have wealth to fall back on, then what gets cut, right? And it's likely to be their endurance sport participation in some way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's going to be what gets cut. Um, And, you know, that's what's actually kind of sad, though, is that, you know, even with the cutting, and I'm not saying that others can't be cut as well, but it just seems like um, what seems to be frivolous or extra for women seems to be cut before what's frivolous or extra for men. Yes. So so let's say, yeah, so, you know, if there are, you know, let's say you're in a heterosexual relationship or marriage household with this, with a common budget, you know, who's going to give up that race first. Right. Uh, That that's an interesting conversation. And I'm not saying it's always going to be the woman who gives it up first, but I, I would, I would wager that the woman would probably give it up first or the discussion would be around the woman giving it up first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would uh, agree. And that's uh. a hard pill for me to swallow. I mean, I got to take a deep breath just saying that, but yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, I think we've got lots to think about. Um, <laughs> we perhaps yeah. um, prompted more questions than we provided answers, but hopefully this has been useful and instructive to think about socioeconomic status as it relates to endurance sport 
and the pandemic and women, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. you know, give you a little bit of depth in thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah. And look, we, we had so many great topics in this particular podcast. It's, it's going to be interesting to, to find the, the topic or the, the major theme around it, because I think we braided together some really important points, mm-hmm. um, you know, endurance sport at the center, but, you know, also women, socioeconomic status, it's just fragile. It's so fragile. Yeah. I think sometimes, um, once again, the fragility of socioeconomic status is so baked in that it's happening all around us and we don't even realize that it's happening. Yeah. You know, so the notion that I can freely, even as a black woman, I can freely take that extra day off, get to that race the day early, spend the amount of money that it takes to train, to fully participate in the sport. And one small thing could happen and that could be changed for me. Right. Right. We got to hold that. So I think the industry really needs to pay attention to it. Yeah, I agree. So industry, pay attention. (laughs) Pay attention. That's right. Oh, and Lisa, wait, we got to make sure we put our homework out on the table, too. I think, um, you know, moving into uh, the next podcast next week, I think what we really need to be aware of is pick up on all the times in which we don't have to think about money and Mm. socioeconomic status the times where something we take for granted I can go to the grocery store and pick up what I need and not look at the amount because I know that I have it you know whatever it may be small or large yeah um, I think I'm going to start taking note of that you know when do I not have to worry about what the price tag is right love it so listeners homework for you as well (laughs) yeah awesome Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy, at Dr. Gold Speaks, or at Outspoken Women in Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time.